So we've been, been working our way through James. Been taking a thematic study, so we found ourselves in the fifth chapter close to the end, and some of you are thinking, man, he, he blew through James really quickly, and then we find ourselves right back once again in the first chapter, and you're thinking, is he just going to rehash everything he said before? James moves in, in cyclical patterns, it moves in thematic patterns, and he comes and he hits things over and over again, and so that's why we have moved through James in this way. And today we're going to be looking at verses 26 and 27, which is at the end of the first chapter. Now James has, up to this point, talked about a variety of things. He's talked about suffering, he's talked about uh, socioeconomic woes, we've got rich people, we've got poor people, what they're supposed to do in light of their circumstance. He's talked about, most, rec- most recently, about not being merely a, a hearer of the word and so deceiving yourself, but putting faith in action, in essence, putting feet to faith. And, and, and the way that he paints that, in essence, is to say, if you're not doing this, then you need, to, you need to stop and you need to evaluate where you are in relation to Christ. He's, he's drawing a really stark indication that, that our Christianity, our spiritual maturity, should, is also a place for evaluation. And that's what James gives us here in verses 26 and 27. Now, any of you that have ever taken a major test, whether it be the SAT, ACT, GRE, LSAT, MCAT, a variety of, you know, letter, letter, AT, aptitude test, any of you that have ever done this, as you enroll in some type of program, they offer you a pre-test, right? A test that is an indication of how well you're doing. Well, I remember only too well as I was studying for the GRE, and I, I took my first pre-test. It was a pretty sorry indication that I had a, a long way to go. I mean, I take this thing, and I'm looking for a good score out of five, and I'm getting like a 1.5, and I'm thinking, well, I've got, I've got room for improvement, so that's good. Never want to set the bar too high. If I'd have scored a five right out of the bat, there would have been no need to study anymore. But scoring low was an indication to me that I had certain deficiencies in vocabulary, deficiencies in math, deficiencies apparently in just bubbling in my name on the front page. I mean, I had a, I had a long way to go. Man, that's what James gives us here. In 126 and 27, he has spilled over the first chapter a variety of really difficult things that they need to apply to their lives. And in 126 and 27, he slaps them over the head and says, how are you doing with it? You've nodded in an agreement. You've, you've followed along as you've read, as you've heard. Well, what difference is it making in your lives? What difference are all the precepts of all the instruction that I've given you actually being met out in the details of your life? Let me read for us the 26th and 27th verse of James. James says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceive his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Man, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He offers us three things by way of a pretest, by way of an evaluation. So he comes in and the first thing he says, if this person thinks he's religious... And so when, when I talk to you about religion, or if I were to say Charles is, is a very religious person, you're thinking in your mind, oh, Charles is religious? Gosh, I thought he was a good guy. I mean, there's this, this understanding that when we throw that out, we expect Charles to be a hypocrite, right? Charles, everybody say it with me, Charles is a hypocrite. 
Come on now, why would you say that about Charles? Don't repeat everything you're asked to repeat. But anyway, when, when somebody is, is referred to as, oh, you know what, they're just, they're just religious. That's not a very, very good thing to have said about us. Because our, our society has kind of taken, has kind of twisted that. So we think of, of somebody being religious as necessarily being a hypocrite or maybe at best a, you know, a fuddy-duddy or just kind of somebody you don't want to have over when you're, when you're looking to have a good time, when you're looking to have fun. But James doesn't mean that. James isn't indicating that there's any deficiency in this person's perception. You see, this person is likely engaged in all the same things as everybody else. So they're, they're, they're attending church. They are giving tithes. They're giving offerings. They're giving of their service. They're, they give every outward appearance that this person is maintaining a vibrant relationship with Jesus. Save one thing. Save one thing. You see, this is the difficult thing. This person evaluates their appearance. They evaluate what everybody else sees. And they think to themselves, I am fine with God. I am good with God. I am righteous before a holy God. But James asks them this question. He says, well, well how are you doing bridling your tongue? And they start thinking, well, I mean, I mean, not great. I'll, I'll be honest. And, and that's really just what I'm trying to do is just be honest with everybody around me. And so it, as honesty comes, I, I, I do fine because I share my honesty with everyone. I speak honestly to the bad hairstyles I see. I speak honestly to the poor preaching. I speak honestly to my concerns over music. I speak honestly to the way other people spend money and, and, and spend their time. I'm a very honest person, you see. And James says, well, hey, I got, I got news for you. If you're not bridling your tongue, if you're not putting restraints on the things you say, your religion's worthless. You're deceiving your innermost part. You're just like the person who is a hearer of the word and not a doer. You are self-deceived. You are working to lead yourself in error. You are working to lead yourself in contradiction to what true faith is. James says that you are deceiving your own heart. This person is likely engaged in, in slander. They're saying bad things about poor Charles. They're saying uh, things that just aren't true about him in an effort to lower, lower Charles and to elevate themselves. This person, when they see that, that tasty uh, morsel of gossip, they engage in it in such a manner that, that they think it is just the best thing that they have ever come across. This person is engaging in gossip. This person is engaging in really whatever flight of fancy that they want to. Most likely in an effort just to be honest. But James tells them. And he uses the, the metaphor of a horse. He says that if you aren't bridling your tongue, your religion's worthless. Now, I don't know how many of you engage in, in, in horseback riding, but I remember being a young child, and I was the youngest of all my cousins, so they always found the, the rankest horse to put me on, and they, they never, they never shortened the stirrups. They thought it was just the greatest thing in the world that my feet wouldn't reach the stirrups, and, and they would, you know, not tighten the saddle up all the way, and they would put the wrong bit in the, in the mouth of the horse that, man, he doesn't like the snaffle bit, 
let's put that one in there. Or he doesn't like the, you know, this, let's put that one on there. And then let's put Matt on him and see how he does. And so that's, that's life as the youngest cousin, right? I mean, I was, I was the youngest of five boy cousins. That's, that's life. You're, you're used to facing those types of things. But I remember being a six-year-old and getting on the back of a particularly rank horse. And I am tugging on the reins and tugging on the reins. And the horse is just like, who is this pipsqueak on my back? He is not able to exercise power over me. I'm a 2,000-pound beast, and I will ruin him. And that's kind of how it was. And so, man, I am tugging, and I am pulling, and I am exercising every power within me, as much as a six-year-old can muster. And it wasn't doing much to change the direction of mine and the opinion of this horse. See, our tongues can be the same way. Many of us feel like helpless six-year-olds as it comes to, to mustering our, our resources and controlling the power of the tongue. But others of us just think that the tongue is, is wholly uncontrollable. And it's best if we just continue to spew these things. And so we don't even engage in attempting to control it. Because when we look inward, we say, it doesn't hurt me. But man, what you've got to realize is that you're disrupting the unity, you're disrupting the body, you're doing damage to the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul, writing in Ephesians 4, gives us some indication of the purposes of the tongue. Writing in 429 and through 32, Paul writes and he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. He says, But only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Then he summarizes it in 32. He says, but be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as in God Christ has forgiven you. As in God, Christ has forgiven you. See, Paul gives us this indication that our tongue shouldn't be used for slander, that our tongue shouldn't be used for gossip, but that our tongues should only be used for good. And so when we get ready to say something, when we get ready to to offer our opinion, when we get ready to to say something about someone else under the guise of edification, we evaluate it. Does this lead to them engaging in a more fruitful display of their Christianity? Does this lead to edifying them? Does this lead to building up grace in them? And if the answer is no, keep your mouth shut. I mean, just, just, just clench down your teeth and swallow that. Swallow the venom. That's what he says. He says, because if you don't do this, your religion is worthless. Not just you're a weaker Christian, but your religion is actually worthless. Now he comes into verse 27. And he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. And he gives us two qualifications. But let's stop right there and evaluate it. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled where? Before God. You see, it's not just that this person thinks that that their activities are pure. It's not just that this person thinks that their actions appear to be undefiled. But we see that God sits in heaven viewing everything. 
God is omniscient. He knows all things. He is able to peer even into the depths of our souls. And he sees our attitudes. He sees our behaviors. He sees our responses. And this is what he says. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. And so we see that God is the one who is looking down and who is investigating and who is evaluating what is pure and what is undefiled. Not merely what we can hide from those who see it, see us engage in this life. To where I can be good one moment and then, and then bad another. And I restrict my good behavior around those who are going to judge me on good behavior. And I engage in, in bad behavior in the workplace. And, and when I'm out playing golf and when I'm out hanging with the ladies. I don't hang with the ladies, but if I did, you can imagine that when I'm hanging with the ladies, I'm, I'm hanging with the ladies. It's lady time. I'm going to leave that one alone. It's going to stop. Let's just stop there. It's lady time for somebody else. See, there's no separation in our Christianity. There's no behavior that we have for church or small group or when we have our Christian friends over. And then a separate behavior when we're in the marketplace. When we're at work, when we're in our commute, when we're, when we're in the home, when we're parenting our kids and nobody else gets to see it. When we're talking even to the telemarketer who interrupts dinner. I don't know how they do that, but when they interrupt dinner, there's no separation for us. There's one code of conduct. And it's a pursuit of religion that is pure and undefiled before a holy God who sees all, who knows all. And that's the, that's the footing that he gives. He says, all right, now that you understand that, he says you have to do two things. He says the religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. Visit the orphans and the widows in their afflictions. Now, this is what James is not doing. James doesn't want us walking around and, and, and you find women who are roughly, I don't know, let's say old. And, 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 you, and you walk up and you say, pardon me, ma'am. I noticed you've got no ring on your finger. Perhaps, are you a widow? And she says, no, I'm actually not. Um, I'm not a widow. I've never been married. Thank you so much for bringing that painful memory to mind. And you say, uh, okay, well, by chance, do you, know any, do you know any widows? And she's like, yeah, but none that want to talk to you. You're like, okay. Hey, just, do, you ha- do you know any orphans? And she's like, again with the questions. No, please leave me alone. So he's not telling us to go out and to find people that fall into the category of orphan and widow. But when we look at the first century, when we look at the people who were orphans and widows, there's something we know about them. See, these are people that that had no rights, they had no status in society, they had no way of bringing about positive change in their own lives because they were regarded as being lowly. Children were regarded as being essentially worthless, which is very different and very hard for us to wrap our minds around as we cherish our children, don't we? I mean, it's evidenced by all the practices that we seem to go to, all of the, the many toys we seem to purchase for them, and all of the clothes we continue to buy for them, even as they outgrow them. But children in the first century had a really low value assigned to them. And as, as low as children were, women had a, a likewise a low value associated with them. I mean, you just kind of disregarded 
much of what they had to say because they had little status and little you know, notoriety in the public. And so when James cues in on these two people, these two groups of folks, he cues in on those who had no ability to exercise anything. They had no control over society. They were the marginalized. They were the manipulated. They were the ones who just had to be tossed to and fro and were looking to the kindness of those around them. Now, John, in 1 John, gives us a word about our ability to help those who need help. He says in 1 John 3 and verses 17 and 18, he says, But if any of you has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Man, this is a word that we need to be engaged. We need to be at work ministering to those who can provide nothing for us, ministering to those who only have need, who only have the ability to make requests. This is what James says. Now, last year at the inaugural prayer breakfast, for those of you who watched it, there's a guy named Eric Metaxas. And he's up and he's speaking and he's got the president to his right and he's got Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi to his left. And he's engaging in this dialogue and he's talking about these two books that he wrote. And he wrote one book on a guy by the name of William Wilberforce. For those of you who've seen the movie Amazing Grace, you're familiar with the story. And he wrote a second book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer is living around the time of World War II and, and was eventually put to death in a Nazi prison camp. Now, he said, when I, when I looked at these two men, I had to ask myself the question, what led them to make the decisions that they did? What led them to make the choices that they did? So he said, in Wilberforce, I looked at him, and, and Wilberforce, who came to faith at the age 26, looked around him and asked himself the question, who are those who are marginalized? Who are those who are considered to be less than human? And for Wilberforce, what he found was the answer in the place of the black African. You see, Wilberforce looked at those who society saw as only valuable inasmuch as that they were chattel, that they could be used to, to work the land, that their bodies could be manipulated, and they could be used as you would a farm implement. But Wilberforce, reflecting upon his Christianity, reflecting upon his faith, began a work to change the status of how those were viewed in society. At great cost to himself, at great cost of, of gain, he engaged in an endeavor to minister to those people who were in their affliction, to minister to those people who brought nothing to the equation because they had no status, no ability. And when he turned to Bonhoeffer, he said, Bonhoeffer asked himself essentially the same question. He said, what would a vibrant faith lead me to do? So Bonhoeffer left the safety of New York City and returned to Nazi Germany. Bonhoeffer began to speak out against the threat of Nazism. And Bonhoeffer began to speak out against the treatment of the Jew. And Bonhoeffer began to do things to try and undermine the Third Reich. And he spilled his life. And he died because he thought the gospel mandated action. 
He thought the gospel mandated his intercession, his work on behalf of those who were considered by their society as less than human. So you can imagine Eric Metaxas, he's up and he's speaking to this large audience in D.C. and he's talking about Bonhoeffer and he's talking about William Wilberforce. And then he begins to ask the question. He says, who in our society should we be striving for? He says, who in our society is considered to be less than human? Who in our society is considered to be something worthy to be discarded? He says, I would submit to you that it's the unborn. He says, I would submit to you that the unborn is the one that is worthy of our efforts. It is worthy of our energy. And they are the vo- we are the voice to give to them in the midst of their plight. And he began to call Christians to work on behalf of the unborn. You see, as we look at those who are marginalized, as we look at those who have no voice on their own, we are reminded that we are aborting millions upon millions every year. And friends, if we engage in isolationism, if we engage in the type of mindset that the many Christians who surrounded William Wilberforce did, and when they said, it doesn't matter. You see, many Christians spoke in favor of slavery. Many German Christians spoke in favor of the Third Reich and the treatment of the Jew. Many Christians in America refused to engage in the debate. If we refuse to engage in the debate, if we refuse to be at work at ending this plight, if we refuse to be at work in ministering to those who are making these decisions, if we refuse to be at work in extending the love of Christ to those who are engaged in this behavior, our religion is worthless. It's valueless. It serves no place, it serves no credit in our lives because the call of a Christian is to be engaged, because the call of a Christian is to intercede for those who can on their own. You see, we see in the words of Jesus speaking in the 25th chapter of Matthew, and he's talking about the final judgment that's going to come, and he says, I took people and I separated them into sheeps, sheep and goats. And I came to the one half and I said... For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous person looks at him, and they say, When did we do these things to you? I I, I don't remember doing these things unto you. And Jesus' response is this. He says, and the king will answer him, truly I say, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he turns to those who are awaiting the judgment. And he says, as often as I was naked, as often as I was hungry, as often as I was in need, and as often as I was in prison, and you did not visit me, and you did not clothe me, and you did not feed me. As often as those things, so you face the judgment. Truly I say to you, you did not come unto one of the least of these, therefore you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Man, that is a, that is a harsh word. That we are judged the first test 
on the way that we control our tongue, the things we say, and that we are judged in the second test in our ministry to those around us who are marginalized, to the ministry of those who need the gospel to be at work in their lives. And he turns in this last section and he says, lastly, he says, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In the last part of verse 27. That religion that is pure and undefiled before God is to keep oneself unstained from the world. This paints the picture that as we go into the world, that it is leaving its imprint on us. That it is leaving its mark on us as we go to work, as we go to Walmart, as we go to Rockwall and go to Target, or wherever it is you go, that the world is leaving its mark on you. That it's leaving its imprint on you. And the word we get from James is that we are to be at work putting away this filth. This is James recalling what he said already in verse 21. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. James is calling us and directing us on the importance of purity and on the importance of holiness. You see, just as there's, there's no time for us to engage in, in non-Christian and Christian behavior, there is no time where we might engage in the pursuit of purity and not being engaged in the pursuit of purity. Because to be a Christian is to always pursue purity. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, is to always be engaged in making sure that we are not stained by the image of this world. Now, I was reading this week about a research study that was conducted at Harvard. There's a guy by the name of Trafton Drew, and he was doing research into attentiveness. And it, it, he had this remarkable study, and what he found is what he referred to as in, intentional blindness, or inattentional blindness, rather. And so what he did was he realized that as people were were going about the business of whatever they were told to do, that they would necessarily be blind to certain things. And so he found a group of people, he, he landed on radiologists, and he said, everybody knows that, that radiologists are very meticulous with details, or we certainly hope that they are anyway. And so what he put together was this test, and he put together five CT scans, and he told them, he says, your job is to find the nodules. Your job, in essence, is to find the cancer. And so they, they looked at the first scan, and they looked at the second scan, and they looked at the third scan, they looked at the fourth scan, and, and they're doing pretty well. I mean, these guys are experts. They're supposed to be doing well. And they're, they're picking up what they're supposed to be picking up. And they looked at the fifth scan. And he says, okay, how many of you saw the gorilla? And they said, well, uh, gorilla. He said, yeah, uh, on, on the fifth scan, how many of you saw the gorilla? And remember, these guys are experts at observing things. And 84% of them missed the gorilla. Now, many of us probably missed him this morning, but as you look at this next slide, and we see the indication of what the, where the gorilla is, you see the gorilla was placed in the top right-hand portion of the screen, where he should be, 
and he's 48 times the size of any nodule. He's 48 times the size of what they were looking for. You see, when people were told going in on the first part that there's a gorilla on this line, can you locate him? 80% of people right off the bat got it. 80% of the people right off the bat got him. You see, what this is a key and what this is an indication of is that as we go through our lives, as we go to school, as we work dutifully in the home, as we go to work, as we engage in all of these activities, we fall into the process of, of, of inattentional blindness. Because we're so given to the, the pattern of life, we're so given to the pattern of what we normally do. But James offers us here in these two verses a wake-up call. He offers us here in these two verses an awareness, an acute awareness of where our focus should be. And so the question comes to us. As you pursue Christ passionately, how are you doing in guarding your tongue? As you pursue Christ passionately, how are you doing in your ministry to those around you? As you pursue Christ passionately, how are you doing in keeping yourself unstained from the world? Because, friends, James offers us only a test of three things. This isn't the far reaches of Christianity, but these three things highlight the need for us to redouble our efforts. These three, these three things highlight the need that we have in our lives to pursue Christ and pursue Christ with great vigor. Friends, as we sit here today, I ask that you continue to reflect on, on the test that James offers us. That you would think back to this past week and those things that you said, and you would ask yourself the question of how well you did in bridling your tongue. Remembering James, his statement that says that if you you do not bridle your tongue, you deceive your heart and your religion is, is proved to be worthless. Think back over the past months and how have you been at work ministering to those who have needs greater than your own? How have you been at work using those things that God has entrusted you with for the ministry to those around you? If we are found to be in wealth, if we are found to have possessions and we are not using them to the ministry of those around us, then we stand in judgment based upon that behavior. And lastly, how are you doing in your pursuit of purity? How are you doing in keeping yourself unstained from the world? How might you pursue God with a whole heart? Let me pray for us.